Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith, and this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 28. Wahoo! <laughs> 28. 28. That's how old I was when I got married. Were you? Yeah. I was 29, I think. Yeah. Yes, I was and I 29. Felt, I felt old. Like oh I was God. one of the last ones of my friends to get married. Isn't that crazy? It seems so young. Dude, I remember being 25 and managing a store at Phipps Plaza in retail. All of my employees were like 21. Uh-huh. And I was like, I felt like I was the old lady telling, oh, yeah. teaching them about life. Yes. Like, listen to me. I'm 25. <laughs> I live in an apartment. <laughs> Be young, dude. Like, yes. I, like I always just... Felt like old from the jump. No, me too. I remember saying to a friend, uh, my friend Steve, who I met when we were hiking the Appalachian Trail. He actually Uh married Ben and I. And he and I were walking. And I had a a long-term boyfriend that I was living with when I was when I started the trail. You whore. I know. And so I met Steve and he was like, so tell me about your boyfriend. You know, I think you might get married. And I was like, yeah, I think we might get engaged. She was like, well, so what What makes you want to do that? And I was like, well, you know, like I'm 25 and like we've been together for three years and like all my friends are getting engaged. And he just looks at me and is like, that's the dumbest reason I've ever heard <laughs> to get married. And it was literally the first time I had thought, yeah, I guess that is kind of a dumb reason yeah. to want to get married. So thank God for Steve. Good you know? job, Steve. And then thank God for Ben, who you met on that same trip. That's right. And married. <laughs> and then got married. And, oh, um, man. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So we recently got, uh, we usually get very nice reviews. Yes. We want to say thank you to everybody who has taken the time to review and said such nice things. And actually, one of those people is Steve's wonderful wife, Carlene. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Speaking of Steve and Carlene, Carlene is one of my very best friends, and she is this badass woman and she let us left us like the nicest review but this week we got a we got not, a barf emoji we got That's a barf the, emoji, barf emoji. <laughs> dang someone said they didn't like how much we chatted and we're just okay we can take criticism yeah we want criticism but we just want everyone to know off the bat like we're not a super serious news podcast. Yeah, if you're we're coming not Dateline, yeah. which is awesome. We we're love not it. Crime junkies, which is also awesome. We're just a we're real loosey goosey. We're a loosey goosey podcast. Chill podcast. We're trying to tell you some fun stories and some not so fun stories, but we're you know we're just trying to tell each other stories, and we hope you appreciate it for what it is. And we're sorry that we make mouth noises. I'm not exactly. Oh yeah, we make mouth noises. I don't know how to not make mouth noises with my mouth when I'm speaking. <laughs> it's a little difficult, huh? Um, so I'm sorry that we made you barf. Someone in Canada. We apologize for new listeners if this is your first episode. If you're not into mouth noises or chit chat, now would be a good time to sign off. Yeah, just like <laughs> get out of here. Go listen to Dateline. And that's okay. It's okay. We're not for everybody. It's okay. You want to get in some quickies? Yeah, I'm going to get right, into a loosey goosey quickie. Mouth noise it up, dude. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Okay, have you heard of this trend? of 
women marrying themselves. Oh, self-partnering? Yeah. 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 And I'm so jealous. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay, so my, my quickie is about this woman. Okay. Um, Laura Messi, who is a 40-year-old fitness instructor from Italy. And so she had made a pact with herself that like, if she hadn't met the one by the time she hit 40, she was like, I'm going to marry myself. And Hell so yeah, she did. did. And so she had a big, she had like a big wedding. She had just like gotten out of like a 12-year relationship. And she was just like, I've been wanting to get married, so I'm just going to do it. And so she had, she spent over 9,000 euros of her own money on like a wedding gown, a special ring. She even had like a white tiered cake with just a one person on the top, like her on the top. And there were 70 guests and food and dancing. I mean, it was a wedding. And then she went off on like her own beautiful honeymoon in Egypt. She was just like, look, if one day I find a man who I can like plan a future with, I'll be happy. But my happiness doesn't depend on him. And I'm like, fuck yes (laughs) hell yeah there was like an um a sex in the city episode where carrie didn't she tell everyone or send out an announcement saying that she was marrying herself because she had spent so much money on people yeah and she registered for yeah i'm not going to go into the whole episode but she um she (laughs) was saying like she had spent so much money on people's like wedding gifts engagement party gifts like like baby showers somebody shamed her for spending a lot of money on shoes um so when her shoes got stolen she registered for that pair of shoes oh i love that yes i do remember that yeah Yeah, it's like actually it's become like a trend there's ceremonies australia the netherlands the u.s the uk there's one woman her name's sophie tanner who wed herself in 2015 after she got out of an abusive relationship oh good and she was like everyone celebrates getting together with someone and becoming married but there's no milestone in society that celebrates escaping something awful or returning to your own happiness and contentment and there are people who are like us who are like yes this is awesome go for it and then of course there's people who are like this is narcissistic this is pointless and so on laura's wedding photos there were people who were saying you're out of your mind there's something wrong with your brain like it's so sad how why does that affect you go away she's like nothing or no one can turn off my smile and she's just like you know to marry yourself it's not for everybody she said you need a certain amount of money the support from those around you and above all a pinch of madness yeah good for you go to a single lady's wedding because i feel like it would be the most fun i think so yeah yeah and then uh, well, do they do all the stuff like the mother-daughter dance and the father-daughter dance? I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I think you can do whatever you want if yeah, you marry yourself. Yeah, you can yourself. do whatever you want. Yeah. And then if you cheat on yourself, you can easily be reasoned with. That's right. <laughs> it's totally fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> I love it. So that's my quickie. That's awesome. Okay. So my quickie. All right. I know I told you guys I was going to try to do all holiday <laughs> themed quickies, but I'm going to be honest with you. There were slim pickings. Yeah. And I could either give you like a really dumb, short quickie about people winning the Guinness Book of World Records, the amount of people that kissed under a mistletoe. Yeah. Like, there you go. That's all. That's, That's all the, the story is. I think there was like 400 people. Okay, good for them. Um, Or I can tell you the story that I just read, which actually makes me really upset. Josh Rimmer, who is funny because we're also talking about weddings. Okay, Josh Rimmer, who is actually the winner of Mr. Gay Canada 2019, 
was planning the wedding for him and his fiance Heath. He wanted to plan a wedding in Puerto Vallarta, which is actually like a very gay-friendly city. Yeah. He wanted to go to an Mm all-inclusive place where everything was paid for because he wanted to cover the wedding for everybody, which was very cool. For about like 45 of his friends. He wanted to cover the the all-inclusive costs for 45 friends? Yeah. Holy cow. I think... Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I think he was trying to cover it, but like for 40 people. Um, it like, you know, that's like the cost of the wedding or whatever. But regardless, it was going to be paid for by someone for yeah. 40 people or 45 people. So he was interested in doing it at the Sheridan Bougainvilliers Resort and Convention Center in Puerto Vallarta. And he... Um, kept calling them and calling them and he left them a bunch of messages they weren't really returning his phone call but when he finally got in touch with them he told them like you know this is what i want and i just so you know i want wedding planners to provide two boutonnieres for both of the grooms and that's when the employee a hotel employee on the phone started to like get all flustered and in a very long like weird rambling answer said oh um we don't specialize in same-sex weddings um you know there's other venues that do and um this isn't really something that we deal with and he was like, wait, what? What do you mean and deal then, with? Yeah. And so then later he ended up getting email. Uh, he told them that he would have to check the resort availability and that they would get back to him because they might have other bookings. But okay. instead they got back an email that was written in like a uh, slightly broken English. And it said, the email said, I am infinitely grateful that you have chosen, uh, that you have thought of Sheraton for your big day. However, our hotel and our staff is not specialized to carry out an equal wedding. And we would not like to take your wedding on as a trial and error as our service could be poor compared to what characterized Sheraton because we know and we are aware that it is your special day we do not want that by our non-specialized service some conflict can be generated on your big day like what the fuck like you don't need specialize in what like it's a wedding it's a regular wedding just like every other wedding like you literally the only thing he's asking is two boutonnieres instead of a boutonniere and a bouquet right so Obviously, he was very upset. He's just like not understanding like, okay, so you don't want my money. And then also like these people are idiots because Josh Rimmer is actually like pretty well known and famous. And he like he's the winner of Mr. Gay Canada. And he has over like 40,000 followers on YouTube. And it's it's so short sighted. If he was covering his wedding at this beautiful place, you guys would have greatly benefited from it and that's regardless like none of that even matters for the fact that they are just a regular couple just like everybody else trying to get married and trying to give you their money and you guys are being total fucking assholes yeah and so when he took to his youtube channel to talk about it thank god and yeah and so and then of course a spokesperson for marriott which i guess owned sheridan Mm -hmm. reached out and they said we're troubled and greatly concerned about the experience reported by mr rimmer or i think it might be rimmer or rimmer r-i-m-e-r the spokesperson told LGBTQ Nation, which is where this article is from, and said that they got in touch with him and apologized to him. They said that they have been long committed to providing an environment where all are welcome, including our LGBTQ guests and their loved ones. And I hope that is true. And I hope that whoever this hotel employee was, right, was fired uh-huh. or was made to see the error of their ways and to apologize to the couple. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. 
Do you want to hear a crazy story? Yes. So this one is super crazy. I got my information from Wikipedia, from Murderpedia, and from this amazing article by this woman, Marley McLeod, on CrimeLibrary.com. So I thought I knew about this case, and then I read her article, and there are so many details that she includes that, like, there's so many details I can't get into every detail for the sake of, like, time Time. and for, like, clarity. (laughs) But I highly recommend reading her article. It's on CrimeLibrary.com by Marley McLeod. Um, And this is a story of Audrey Marie Hilly, the Black Widow of Alabama. Ooh, I didn't know Alabama had a Black Widow. Wow. So Audrey Marie Hilly, who everybody called Marie, was born in 1933 in Blue Mountain, which is a tiny mill town in northern Alabama. And randomly, Marie was not the only Black Widow to come from this tiny town. There of were Black two Mountain. Black Widows. Yeah. <laughs> so in the 1950s, Nanny Doss, who you might have heard of, she was also born in Blue Mountain, but she later moved to Oklahoma. She became known as the Giggling Grandma. And when it was discovered Ooh, that she had killed, I've heard of her. Yeah, she killed 11 people, including Yay. five husbands, two of her children, and her mother. Have we done a story on her? No, we haven't. Okay. But no, did we? No. Okay. I did one a, a woman that was similar. Oh, yeah. But she was also a grandma. Who giggled. But I don't think she was a giggling grandma. Okay. Okay, so Marie. So uh-huh. she was born during the Depression, and both of Marie's parents worked in the local mills. So Marie was cared for by relatives. But her parents loved her. They spoiled her as much as they could, and they had really high hopes for her future. They thought that Marie would graduate from high school, which was pretty rare for girls in her area during that time. Most of them only made it to middle school and then went and worked in the mills. And they thought they wanted Marie to graduate from high school. I said that already. Um, so they moved <laughs> they to... They really wanted her to graduate. <laughs> they really, 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 really wanted her to. So they moved to the nearby town of Anniston in 1945 to give Marie a better education. And she thrived in school. She was in student council. She was did was a really good student. And she was popular in seventh grade. She was named the prettiest girl in the school. She got to high school. She joined the Future Teachers of America and the Commercial Club, which was an organization for girls who planned secretarial careers, which was like high reaching for her area for the time. So it was at that school that Marie met Frank Hilly. So Frank also came from like a warm, hardworking family like Marie's. They all worked in the mills. He was older than Marie and he had actually joined the Navy while Marie was still in high school. So in 1951, while he was on leave from the Navy, the two got married. Uh, Marie stayed behind to finish high school while Frank was stationed in Long Beach, California. And then after graduation, she joined him in California and then in Boston. And that was where they found out that Marie was pregnant with her first child. And so they ended up moving back to Anniston. He got discharged from the Navy or the Army. They moved back to Anniston. And in November of 1952, their first son, Mike, was born. And Frank got a job in the shipping department of Standard Foundry while Marie worked as a secretary. And her parents' dreams for her seemed to be coming true. So by all outward appearances, the Hilly family was perfect and loving. Did she graduate? She did graduate, yes. Thank God. (laughs) She graduated (laughs) high school. She was a secretary. Of course, like the perfect loving facade Uh was just that. Or else it wouldn't be a crazy story. So Marie was like spending more money than they were making, and it was causing problems. 
1960, their daughter Carol was born and Marie was becoming increasingly unhappy and resentful. Like Frank said that Marie would be awake sometimes all night long, just shaking with like fear and a fear that like she couldn't articulate. Like she was having, definitely having some mental issues. So he would like try to soothe her, but she could never soothe her agitation. They were like, he didn't really understand because they were earning enough. Frank was now the foreman of the shipping department and Marie was an executive secretary that she was, she was good at her job, but there was just like never enough for Marie. Like as a mother, she showered her children with gifts, but she was like emotionally distant. She let Mike run wild and she babied him, especially because he was often sick. And then Marie and Carol clashed like Carol was a tomboy and Marie was like very girly and dainty and she wanted her daughter to be the same. And so they Mm -hmm. just never got along. So in 1974, Mike was away at college uh, and married when Frank came to visit him. Frank told Mike that he had come home early one day and found Marie in bed with her boss. (gasps) And Frank told Mike that Marie had been opening lines of credit all around town and not paying her bills. And so this is a tiny town. They're well known. And people are like, hey, your wife opened credit with your name and she hasn't paid. So um, Frank told Mike that he was thinking of getting a divorce. What Frank didn't tell Mike was that Frank had become increasingly sick over the last year. He'd had nausea and exhaustion. Uh, uh, And by 1975... Poison poison everywhere. Everywhere. This should just be called, oh, do you want to hear the poison story today? (laughs) (laughs) So he finally went to see a doctor, but nothing seemed to help. So Frank's condition worsened and tests showed that his liver had failed. And on May 22nd of 1975, Frank Hilly died. His official cause of death was hepatitis. So Marie collected the $31,000 life insurance policy, which didn't make her rich, but it was like, you know, a pretty good windfall. And she began spending it right away like she bought a car clothes jewelry and then she bought gifts for her mother and for the kids and the money frank bumper sticker on the car (laughs) like the money soothed her for a time but she grew increasingly agitated again fairly soon so her mother lucille had been diagnosed with cancer soon after frank had died and she moved in with marie and then mike and his wife terry i didn't put this in here but mike had been sick a lot as a kid and then when he went to college, he stopped getting sick. Her child? Yes. Oh, yeah. So Mike and his wife, Terry, moved in with Marie, too, because they had just he had just taken a job in his hometown. He was a pastor. And so they wanted to save money because they wanted to get a house of their own and have a family. But they soon regretted moving in with Marie because Terry, the wife, started getting sick with stomach problems. And during the time they lived with Marie, she was in the hospital four times and she had a miscarriage. Oh, no. So Mike and Terry decided to move out and get an apartment. But before they could move out, a fire broke out at Marie's home. And so Carol, the daughter, Marie, and Marie's mom all had to move into their new apartment while the house was being repaired. And then when the house was finished being repaired, a fire broke out in the apartment next door to Mike and Terry's. So Mike and Terry had to move back into the house with Marie. Oh my God. Yeah. So in 1977. It's like a Jordan Peele movie. <laughs> it, uh, it's like even crazier than like oh I, all God. the details I'm telling you. Wow. So in 1977, Marie's mother Lucille died 
And around this time, strange things started happening to Marie and her neighbor, Doris. So they were both experiencing petty thefts, so they said, threatening phone calls and small fires in their closets. And so the police responded to over a dozen complaints from the two women. And after one complaint, policemen who came to interview Marie had some Kool-Aid from her, (gasps) noticed that they all felt sick to their stomach after leaving her house. Oh my God. And actually, kids in the neighborhood, after all everything came out, would say that they all would get sick after going to Marie's house. Oh my God. So Marie and Carol moved around a lot over the next couple years. They moved in with Frank's sister, Frida, and then with his mother, Frank's mother, Carrie. And strange things began to happen at Carrie's home, too. Weirdly enough, small fires, cut phone lines, and then Carrie, who's Frank's mom, started getting nauseous and vomiting frequently. By 1979, Carol Hilly was 19, and she was a freshman at college. She came home for the summer, and then she fell ill. So Marie became Carol's caretaker. She took her to doctors, none of whom could diagnose the illness. So all the nausea and vomiting were like now almost constant, and as well as she had tingling sensations in her hands and feet and an ever-worsening muscle weakness. So in August, Carol was admitted to the regional care center and the doctor suggested that her mother take her to see a psychiatrist because they were like, there's no explanation for this. It's all in her head. So Marie took Carol to Dr. John Elmore and told him that Carol was despondent and suicidal and Carol was admitted to a psych ward in Birmingham. So Carol's friend, Eve Cole, who's like a badass who like something is wrong here yeah and so because she had actually been there one night during the summer when she saw marie giving carol an injection and she said it was medicine from the doctor (gasps) and carol told eve that marie had done that like she's like yeah she always gave me injections they were she said they were medicine holy doctor and so eve called mike and told her that she thought something was wrong so mike is the the son and mike had started to come to believe that his mother had killed his father. And so he called Dr. John Elmore, who was the psychiatrist, and to tell him his suspicions. And John Elmore was like, I don't believe that your mom is poisoning your sister. But he did tell Marie that she could no longer visit Carol. Marie became frantic. Okay. She just discharged Carol from the hospital and admitted her the next day to the University of Alabama hospital. And so by a stroke of luck, on September 20th of 1979, Marie was arrested for writing bad checks, including one that bounced for a life insurance policy she had taken out on Carol. Oh my God. So while Marie was in jail, the family contacted Carol's new doctor to tell them what they thought was happening. And the doctor actually listened and took it seriously. And he checked Carol's fingernails and toenails for Aldridge Mies lines, which are like white deposits that you can see on the nail from if you've been dosed with arsenic. Oh man. So the lines appeared on every single nail. And Dr. Thompson was like, I am pretty sure that Further tests are going to reveal that Carol was loaded with arsenic and had been so for a long time. So they tell Mike about the diagnosis. So he contacts the coroner and t- tells him all about Carol's diagnosis, his father's death, and his grandmother's death because he thinks the grandmother wow. was probably also poisoned. So Mike said he thinks his mom is mentally ill and he wants to get her help. So Marie is now 
officially under suspicion. She is in, you know, she was still in jail for these bad, bad checks, checks. But evidence is like mounting quickly. Like Frank's body was exhumed and they found Whoa. arsenic. Lucille Frazier, who is Marie's mother, her body was exhumed and they found arsenic. And a half full p- pill bottle full of liquid arsenic was found at Marie's home. And when she was arrested, arsenic was found in her purse. So that's all that we were experts now on poisoning. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all that they need. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So Marie was charged with the attempted murder of her daughter and let out on bail. Apparently like a very low bail. So her attorney took her before her trial to Birmingham to stay in a hotel because Marie was like, Frank's sisters are going to hurt me. They're coming after me. She was just like super paranoid. And but a week later, when the return, when the attorney returned to the hotel to visit her, they found that Marie Hilley had disappeared. Of course she did. The same day that she had disappeared, Carrie Hilley, who was Frank's mom, died of cancer. But when her hair was tested, they found <gasps> elevated arsenic levels. Holy crap. So... The day after she disappeared, Marie stole her aunt's car, clothes, and suitcase. And after that, her trail went cold. And it remained cold for three years. Wow. So what was she doing? Murdering. I'm murdering and I'm poisoning. (laughs) No, she just got married. She She did? So it turns out, like, from Alabama, she went to Fort Lauderdale, where in February of 1980, she met a a man named John Homan. She was calling herself Robbie Hannon at the time, saying that she was from Texas and that she'd lost both of her kids in a car accident. John was this shy, awkward man, and he was very taken by Marie slash Robbie. So Marie was working as a secretary again. She moved in with John within a month. And then by October, the two moved from Florida to New Hampshire, where his brother lived, and they got married. So they both got jobs. They became part of a community. And Marie, as Robbie, would often talk about her twin sister, Terry, who she said still lived in Texas. So Marie also started claiming that she herself was ill and then revealed to John that she had a rare blood disease that was incurable and that she was dying. So in September of I know this is very confusing. Uh, yeah, I'm like, what? Okay. So in September of 1982, Marie, as Robbie, <laughs> tells John that she's going to Texas to visit her twin sister, Terry, and that she's going to seek treatment for this illness. So six weeks later, Marie calls John saying, Marie is now acting as Terry, the twin sister. Oh, my gosh. Calls John, tells him that Robbie had died. Oh, my so God. Guess, and then the next day... Marie, now with bleached blonde hair, and ha- she had lost a bunch of weight over the- that six weeks, flies to New Hampshire to see John pretending to be Terry. That is insane. So John says he believed her. He says, I thought she That's was like Terry. She had blonde hair now. She had blonde hair now. <laughs> she was skinny. I don't know. So together, they arranged a funeral service and went to Robbie's old office to meet her coworkers. Oh my God. And it was actually the co-workers who became suspicious. And so while They're Terry... They're like, you know it's the same lady, right? <laughs> that's, that's Robbie. <laughs> that's Robbie with blonde hair, you oh dummies. My God. So Terry got a job and moved in with John, claiming that they needed to be together to get over Robbie. So Robbie slash Marie's old co-workers started investigating. They looked at the obituary for Robbie and started calling around. And they found out the hospital where Robbie's body was supposed to, so supposedly left at the Medical Research Institute of Texas didn't exist. Well, why though? Why is she, like, I don't understand why she's like doing this whole thing. I, no idea. Oh my God. 
So then they went to the church. Um, Drama queen. They found that the church to which the obituary that Robbie stated, that was fictitious. They checked the obituary in coroner's records in the Dallas area and found that there was like no one named Robbie Hannon who had supposedly died. So they actually reported their findings to local police who it turned out they thought Terry might be this other woman who was wanted for bank robbery. So they brought her up, brought her in thinking, oh, maybe she's pretending to be, maybe she's this other woman pretending to be this Terry, right? So they, it was just kind of like, they didn't know, they didn't know anything about Audrey Marie Hilly. They just thought, oh, she's, this is a woman pretending to be someone she's not. Yeah. And we think it's this woman who had robbed a bank. But when they came and asked her who she was, they picked her up. She actually gave them her real name. They said, I'm Audrey Marie Hilly. I'm wanted in Alabama on check charges. Wow. And so the New Hampshire police checked out her story and they found the murder charges, which she apparently didn't know about. Really? Because they didn't charge her until after she disappeared. had disappeared. Oh, wow. So Marie was brought back to Alabama on January 19th, 1983, and she sat trial, and it took the jury just three hours to come with its back with its verdict. So she was guilty of the murder of Frank Hilly and the attempted murder of Carrie, Carol Hilly, her daughter, and the next day she received a life sentence for the murder and 20 years for the poisoning. And at the sentencing hearing, she said she was innocent. So she was sent to the Tutwiler State She's Prison. She's like, it was my twin. It was my twin. <laughs> it wasn't me, Marie. It was Brie. <laughs> yeah. It's my evil twin. Yeah. Look, I'm blonde. Look, I have blonde hair. <laughs> I mean, do you not? I have on glasses. <laughs> yeah. I have glasses and a mustache, sir. <laughs> it could not have been me. could not have been me. <laughs> she oh has God. one of those like glasses that have a weird fake like, nose and yeah, mustache. Yeah. <laughs> those Marcho Grouch. Yeah, the eyebrows. Yeah. <laughs> no, but did I just say Marcho Grouch? <laughs> Groucho Marx. Groucho oh, yeah, Marx. my twin brother. Marcho Marx. Yeah, Mar- this is my twin. So she was sent to state prison in 1983, and John Homan, the husband, uh-huh. relocated to Alabama to be near her. Because in his mind, there's married, and he still loves her. Oh, my God. So over the next four years, Marie was a model prisoner, and she started being allowed out on three-day passes. So she returned every time, no problem. She's like, they're like, not a single person has been poisoned since she's been here. <laughs> she is the perfect, the perfect inmate. prisoner. So until on February nineteenth, she and John were staying at a hotel, and John went to get breakfast. And when he returned, he found a note that said, "I hope you'll be able to forgive me. I'm getting ready to leave. It'll be best for everybody. We'll be together again. Please give me an hour to get out of town." And Marie wrote down that a man named Walter was taking her out of town. She would fly to Canada and contact John later. And then John, to his credit, called the sheriff. But everybody assumed Finally. they were like, she probably is out of state already. Like, she's she's this master criminal. She's She's disappeared before. But then it was like a rainy, cold day on February 26th. So seven days later, the police were called to a house near Blue Mountain where she was born. And this strange, delirious woman was on on a woman's name, Sue Craft's porch, and said she needed help. She said that her car had broke down, that she was suffering from hypothermia. And Sue Craft actually didn't recognize the woman as Marie Hilly, she even had a though. <laughs> well, she had known Marie, like you know, as a kid. Yeah. But she was so deteriorated that within like minutes of getting to her door, Marie had lost conscious and began convulsing and her heart actually stopped in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. 
And she, nobody knew how long she'd been wandering, but she was, her body temperature had fallen to 81 degrees and she died alone in that ambulance Did like she from hypothermia. Poison herself? No, it's, I think she just, just walking around from the, the elements. Cold. It was like, wow, freezing and cold. And on February 28th, 1987, Marie Hilly's children buried her beside Frank, the husband she'd murder. Mm, that's an interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> Frank's probably like, get her away <laughs> from me. <laughs> yeah. She literally murdered me. Yeah. I don't want to be near her. Oh my God. Crazy. <gasps> that is crazy. So that's my story. Oh my Audrey God. Audrey Marie Hilly, the I Black can't wait Widow to of Alabama. see what she looks like. I just really wanted to see her. Oh, we'll man. post pictures. It's just her and Groucho Marx. <laughs> <laughs> just everyone. She looks different. <laughs> oh, my God. Crazy. Crazy. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen? Are you ready for a love story? That's kind of a nice love story. Yeah. <laughs> I would love a love story that doesn't involve poisoning. There's love in it. There's a couple of things I'm like, wait a sugar, but it's a love <laughs> no. story. Are you going to take us to Happy Town or what? No, it's Happy Town. Yeah, okay. but there's some choices that were made in the middle. Well, you know what? That's life. I have issue with. Okay, okay yeah. Let's hear um, it. Well, it's not that big. Okay, anyway. So, okay, this was an article written for the Mirror.uk by... Melissa Thompson and Joe Cusack, not to be confused with John or Joan. Okay, this is their... This is Joe Cusack. This is the other Cusack. It's like, this is the story of Maureen Justice and Hugh Robertson. In September of 1958, Maureen's father was working in Venezuela for an oil company. The family were making their annual visit to Britain, which like, that sounds lovely, especially in 1958, you know? That sounds like you got money. It does Well, I think it if he's like working in the shit. oil fields. Yeah. So from there, they had to fly to Trinidad to pick up a transatlantic liner. Again, this sounds like so fun right? for a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> okay. While waiting for the boat, Maureen's dad decided to reach out to a former colleague who was uh, Mr. Robertson, who was living on the island. And so they, the families decided to meet up for a visit. And when... Maureen's family got to the Robertson home. She immediately noticed their uh, hunk of a son, Hugh. All right, hunky I'm, Hugh. Hunky Hugh. I'm going to post some pics. He's pretty good looking. All I'm just right. saying. Maureen said, Hugh and I clocked eyes on each other. He was good looking with long eyelashes and blue eyes. Aren't they all on guys? <laughs> guys, are, like long eyelashes are always wasted on dudes. Yeah. Anyway, so he had long eyelashes and blue eyes. He was very shy, really into his music, and just lovely. And Hugh's recollection of meeting Maureen was just as lovely. He said, I remember this cute chick. <laughs> she had big boobs. And yeah. Tits out to Hugh. No, uh, <laughs> he said. <laughs> I just want you to know when Jen said tits out to here, she also did the arm motion, but they were like to the side. <laughs> were they? I didn't want to knock over the microphone. <laughs> tits out to here. To the left, to the right. Tits everywhere. Um, he said, I remember this cute chick. And when I saw her sitting on the fender of my father's pickup truck, I thought, wow. <laughs> and so he actually wasn't supposed to be there that night. Um, his uh, Usually on Friday nights, the family would go out shopping and stuff. But as 
luck would have it, Hugh's sister, Thesbina, actually had an infected mosquito bite so that they ended up all staying home that night. Uh-huh. Thanks, Thesbina. Um, so the families ended up meeting two times within three days, and Hugh and Maureen spent as much time together as possible. But, of course, they had to be accompanied by Hugh's sister, Thesbina. Right. So well, how could she get out with that infected I don't know. Bite? It's just like miraculously healed. <laughs> So there was a lot of flirting, but Maureen says there was a lot of flirting between Hugh and me. We went swimming and we saw local sights. He treated me like a princess. And then he kissed me goodbye on the steps of my house. It felt so grown up, so romantic. So Hugh and Maureen just fell, were young, but they Mm -hmm. fell like madly in love. And so they wrote to to each other regularly and then the following summer maureen traveled alone by herself they just sent her on a plane sent to her to trinidad, trinidad. yeah and okay. so she said she spent she spended spent a wonderful fortnight which i had to google that means two weeks okay <laughs> um with the robertson family <laughs> so she's been they just sent her on a plane and like to trinidad but she says that when she met him at the airport his dad and his sister were there and hugh shook her hand and his father was like come on just kiss her like go on kiss the <laughs> like girl. we know why she's here i know she said we went to the movies parties and for walks he taught me a few chords of king creole on the guitar which meant he could put his arms around me how sweet his sister still had had to accompany them everywhere but one of her sister yeah i know she's like, oh, <laughs> i mean yeah. she first she got that name and then i know like, of then one afternoon, they were actually allowed to go to a coffee bar together alone because she had to sort out, uh, sort out her return visa. And she said, we had a milkshake in town and we felt so grown up. <laughs> she just wanted to feel grown up. Right? You can feel grown up in Venezuela. Yeah. So Hugh actually made plans to visit Maureen in Venezuela that December. And, you know, they, they meant to, like, keep their romance going. Uh-huh. But then Maureen's dad got let go from his job and he had to leave Venezuela and they then had to go to the U.S. and Canada and they traveled around looking for another job. Yeah. And she says that that was like the most miserable year of her life because she couldn't go to school. She was uprooted and traveled around. You know, she just hated it. But she said that the one saving grace was that she um, would always write to Hugh and let him know where she was going. And by the time she got there, there was always a letter waiting for her when she got there from Hugh. Isn't it sweet? Yeah. He would send it to the general post office. So she would like go and get in. And she said it was just lovely having those letters to look forward to. But by 1961, Maureen was back in England and it didn't look like they were probably ever going to see each other again. Hugh was like still abroad and they both started different relationships as the letters faded. You know, they had life. They They got life. life. They got life. Um, So around 1963... Maureen actually met her husband, Tom, at a dance. And in the mid-1960s, they married and they had two daughters. And then eventually Hugh, who was working as a service coordination manager, um, settled into Perth, Australia with his wife. And then they had a son. Um, And he says that his marriage, though, was not a happy one. And he occasionally let his mind drift back to memories of Maureen. Mm -hmm. He said, I even looked online for Maureen in the late 1990s, but I found nothing. I often wondered what happened to her because there was no closure. He said, I always felt guilty about not calling it quits properly. Like they never like right, closed and faded. Yeah. And he said that Maureen didn't realize this, but I had every intention of marrying her. Hmm. Yeah. 
So, and then in 2009, Maureen was at home cleaning out her attic and she came across a shoebox filled with Hughes letters and photos. And she said, reading them over was like stepping back in time. I wanted so much to see him again. So she tried to find him on Facebook and there was no, there was no trace of Hugh. But luckily, Sister Thesbina has yeah. a weird ass name. Right. <laughs> oh, that name is coming in handy. There's not a lot of Thesbinas. So not. she she looked up Thesbina uh-huh. and she was able to find her because her name is so unique. And so Maureen sent her a message and then Thesbina emailed Hugh about it. And he said when he got that message from his sister or his email from his sister, he said what's crazy is the day before he had heard one of their songs. They had this song together. It was called Living Doll and it was their song. Okay. And he said the day before he got that email, he had heard that song in his office and he sat there listening to it and all of the memories of Maureen flooded Aww, back. So then sweet. he, yeah, then he gets this email from his sister and Maureen says about that song that her family always knew that he, she held this candle for you. And whenever that song came on the radio, she would turn to her family and say, ooh, I've just had a Hugh Robertson moment. <laughs> <laughs> so Thesbina forgot to send him her email address but Hugh now that he knew her full name was able to like trace her yeah and he emailed her and he said if you're the Marine Fallon I last saw on Monday September 7th 1959 at Piarco Airport I've never forgotten you wow yeah, isn't that sweet and then um hold on what are they both still married uh-huh that's where I take <laughs> umbrage is that the right? yeah I don't this is where I'm like you was married okay so yeah but the, i mean also yeah it's like, i mean it was old friend yes yeah okay like that's how many when facebook and yeah like when those first came up so many i feel like so many yeah, like you old like boyfriends whoever yeah exes. everybody yeah. like came out of the woodwork to be like hey how are you doing good to see you like but there's a little more okay uh, okay, so she was, you know, she was so excited to hear from him and he was elated to hear from her. And then they instantly began constant contact and they were Skyping each other twice a day, morning and night. Oh, goodness. Okay. That's a lot. That's a lot. And so Maureen says, um, I didn't even recognize Hugh. He wears glasses. It's funny because it reminds me story. She goes, he wears glasses now and he didn't back then, but he's still the same person. <laughs> And I don't know. Maybe it's his twin. <laughs> maybe it's what's her name. <laughs> um, so he had a and he had a lovely voice. And um, she said we just caught up on each other's lives, and it was lovely just talking to them. And this time they knew that wouldn't let each other go again. So at this point, Maureen's husband Tom, who was 15 years older than her, was suffering long-term health problems, uh-huh. and in. November of 2010, his mobility was so bad that he was living in a nursing home. So while Maureen was visiting her husband five times a week, she says that Hugh's friendship was a a source of strength for her, but that she focused on Tom. Right. I understand that. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Maybe I'm... All right. Okay. 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 And so she said, I thought quite early on that things would change and we'd eventually be together and so did Hugh. So it's like they kind of knew they were going to end up together, but her husband was really sick. And she stayed with him through the end. You know what I mean? Yeah, Um, that's nice. She said, while I wasn't about to lose Hugh again, we had the here and now to sort out first. As you get older, and this makes sense too. Like, I'm not 
at this age yet, but I get what she's saying here. She says, as you get older, you've got less life and you can't be as noble and brave as you could when you think you've got years and years to go. Yeah. You know, so it's like if you're nearing the end and, you know, you don't have very many years left of your life, like you do just want to be happy, right? And be with, yeah. So in September 2011, Hugh, who also said that his marriage was, quote unquote, virtually over for many years, Mm -hmm. visited Maureen in England. Maureen's husband knew about the visit and he said that he wanted his wife to be happy. That's sweet. Hugh says, seeing her was absolutely great. It was like all those years melted away and I felt like I was 18 again. And they spent three weeks walking, traveling the country, visiting Hugh's parents' graves in Cornwall and meeting Maureen's youngest daughter. At the end of the trip, Hugh went back to tie up loose ends in Australia. Uh-huh. I think leave his way. Yeah. And, but this time he took Maureen with him. He oh, was like, hey, I'm back. Yeah. And I'm bringing this woman with me. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> I want you to meet someone. <laughs> and I also want a divorce. Yeah. Hugh said that he didn't want to say goodbye to goodbye again because the last time he did, it was 50 years before he saw me again, is what she said. Mm-hmm. So after two months, they returned to England and Maureen still visited Tom and was there when he passed away peacefully in May of 2013. So then at the end of that year, Hugh's divorce came final. And then that April, he, uh, I'm sorry, April of 2014, he gave Maureen his mother's engagement ring. Do you think he got it back from the first (laughs) wife? I don't know. I mean, probably, right? Probably, yeah. (laughs) He's like, can I have that? (laughs) Because I'm going to give it to this one. The one I should have married. Yeah, put it on her her finger. Um, So she said, we didn't get engaged in a grand way because we always knew we'd get married eventually. So September 5th, 2014, they married in Southport Town Hall. And they were watched by family and friends who apparently all supported their relationship. And they live now in Southport, Merseyside. I guess that's in England. And um, she said, one of the lovely things is how much we laugh together. I've never laughed so much or been so happy. I didn't even know people could be this happy. She said, we sat watching television the other day and I said to Hugh, I can't believe I can feel this happy just sitting here doing nothing. Finding him again is really the stuff of dreams. Really amazing. I mean, it, it is. is. It is. It and is. I, it's you good, know what? I yeah. think it is. It's like, yes, there's stuff in the middle that makes us a little like cringe a little, but I think that's just because it's not a perfectly. Yeah. Like it's perfect not a perfect package in a little right? bow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like every, right. every person, like everybody's life, like that's real life. Everybody's yeah. life is messy. And sometimes it's like they said, it's not as noble and whatever, but like, yeah. I applaud those people for finding their happiness and. Yeah. And and doing it. And sometimes, and, you know, it wouldn't have been the... You're right. Like, it, how... It wouldn't have been the right thing. Or is there a quote-unquote right and wrong way to do it? But, like, for her, she knew her husband of all those years was very ill. And yeah. she didn't... Could you imagine if she would have left him then? Right. For this man? Well, and she she was honest about she it. Was honest, and, yeah. Okay. And he left his wife. You and, guys you know. got me. Yeah. You guys got... Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy for the both of you. I'm happy for the both of them, too. Yeah. I am. Okay. I I thank you, Sally, for <laughs> making me see. I mean, it was your story. I know. <laughs> well, that's my love story. All right. All right. Should we do something dumb and something we love? Yes. Okay. I'm going to go first. 
And this is kind of uh, all together, but on Tuesday, I went and got my hair cut. Yay! And it looks great. Thanks. <laughs> I like that you're saying that, but also you can't tell because... It's in a ponytail. It's in I'm a ponytail, and, <laughs> and I didn't shower or anything, so... But that um, was our deal. We said we weren't going to shower for this. That's right. But anyway, but I really like the cut that I got, and so I love that. Um, nice. But the dumb thing is that... So I went to this... This salon called Bishops. Have you ever been there? It's yeah, like, it's just like, like a walk-in. Yeah, yeah. But like I better think it's like than a chain. Yeah, it's yeah. a chain, but it's like better than like a supercut. It's like they actually, I think they're pretty usually they do color and stuff yeah and and then it's like hip like they offered me a beer when i went oh cool and i was like it's tuesday i'm just taking an hour in between work like do they sell beard wax oh i'm sure yes 100 percent. it's that kind of place so anyway so i really like the guy who was doing my hair but he was he was asking me like what i did i was like he was like asking me about my hair and he was like so how what when you do it but what do you do and i was like well you know i'm usually like like hurrying to get ready for work or um or a show so i'm like blow drying it and then you know a lot of heat whatever he goes oh a show and i said yeah i'm a comedian and he just goes okay and then at the very end i'm like checking out and i'm getting ready to go and he i'm goes, already cringing no 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 okay no. i thought okay. he was gonna be like you know i've always wanted to do be- comedy no he goes he goes so what do you do at cnn and I didn't, I didn't really understand what he said, so I just said, "Oh, I'm a writer because that's what I do for my job." I was like, "I'm a writer," and and then he goes, "Oh, so you make the talking heads talk?" And I realized what he had just said—that he had just said CNN—and I just go, "Huh?" And then I just walk out because I re- when I said comedian, he heard CNN because CNN is in Atlanta. Oh, and so now I can never go back to this guy who gave me a good haircut because. I didn't he correct him. He thinks you work at CNN. And I just... You can easily <laughs> go back, dude. Just be like, hey, I was like kind of confused. I think you thought I said CNN. <laughs> I was confused because I said comedian. I should have just corrected him It's not him like then. he gave you his resume or something and he's trying to get a job at CNN. But he was like, oh, you know, follow me on Instagram and then you can make a new another appointment. I was like, why well, can't I follow him on Instagram? Because he's going to see my Instagram and he's going to see that I uh, don't work at CNN. No, but he might think that because you're a lot of comedians of other jobs or a lot of comedians work in television, it's you could easily it's just like no, I I quit my job at CNN. Yeah, this haircut was so good they fired me. They fired me. <laughs> What's funny For being is that too good looking. Every time I go, every I mean literally any time I've gotten my haircut, I have very like fine and hair that does not have a lot of volume, which is fine, I don't want much volume, is that they always are like, let's, I'm gonna give you volume. And so I end up walking out looking like a newscaster. Oh yeah. Like huge hair, and I'm just like, I don't, I've, I've shown you pictures. Yeah. And so I totally looked like a news anchor, which I was like, is that why he's saying that? Because I thought that Oh. As- <laughs> anyway. So don't go bad, because he gave you a news anchor haircut. The haircut's good. The just hair not this style. style was pretty pretty bad do you want me to go back there with you i'll sort it out <laughs> and me then, his name. give me his instagram be like i'm jen o'neill <laughs> <laughs> and i'm on the news from- <laughs> you might recognize me from nbc <laughs> awesome so is that what do you, is that what you love is your hair or do you have i, I love yeah okay i want to cut off your no. thing you love Okay. Uh, So my dumb thing is um, a dumb thing for a lot of parents right now. And I've always said that I wasn't going to do this stupid shit. That I wasn't (laughs) buying into it. But then my daughter came home from school and was like, 
everybody's elves are going nuts and our elf doesn't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) And she was so upset. Like, elf on the shelf. Like, I... I always said I'm not doing it. Like, yeah. pe- but somebody gifted us an elf in the shelf. Of course, the kids wanted to put it up on right. the shelf. But I always like never moved it, never did anything with it. The kids never asked me about it. Yeah. But at school, they found out that their friends' elves are doing all kinds of wacky shit. Yeah. And it pisses me off. I like looked more into it. I was like, who created this shit? And it was created by a woman, Carol Abersold, and her daughter Shonda. About over a cup of tea. They just mm-hmm. decided, like, mm-hmm. let's do this thing. Let's write this. And it wasn't just, like, let's write this book. They went to other daughter. So it's a family. Yeah. And then they went to the other daughter who is an ex, um, an expert in sales and marketing. And uh-huh. they, like, wholeheartedly were like, let's market the fuck out of this shit. And then it just became this thing. And then I, when I was looking more into it, like there are people that have um, like psychology today says it's like a dangerous parental crutch um, saying that it's like you're conditioning kids to accept. And this is a little deep. This is yeah. a little deep. Uh, it's conditioning kids to accept the surveillance state and that it's communications. It communicates to children that it's okay for people to spy on you and you're not entitled to privacy. And also... It's saying that if you grow up thinking it's cool for the elves to watch you and report back to Santa, then it's also cool for the NSA to watch you and report back to the government. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little cheap. So I didn't hate it that much. But when I looked into it, I was like, yeah. Yeah. I like this shit. My daughter was so upset. And so just because I love her so much, I was like, fine, I'll move it. Yeah. I'll move it around, but I'm not going to like... Put it in like little Yeah, I'm like not going to make it do bad things. And I don't understand if the whole thing is like you're, the elf is supposed to teach good behavior. Like I'm yeah. watching. Why is the elf getting into trouble? Like the whole thing, like there's all these like Pinterest pins of elves right. like like making snow angels out of the flower and making a mess and doing all these things, rolling toilet paper everywhere. But like that doesn't make any sense because the elf is supposed to be teaching your Let's kids. Take it down. <clears throat> I don't like it. So that's the thing I don't like. I don't like elf on the shelf, but I love um, Louisa's been. I just I ever so slightly move it from like this corner to that corner, and it makes her entire day. Yeah, she's like, like she so excited. Wakes to get up, and- like runs out into the living room. She talks about it all day long. She talks about how she can't wait to see where the elf is going to be tomorrow. No. It just lights up her life, and so it I makes love it. Worth it. Yeah, I'll do it for her. Yeah. So I love that she loves it so much. But man, we do such dumb things for our kids. We really do. Ugh, it's just pressure we don't need. <laughs> So that's my something dumb and something I love. Yeah. Sorry, hey, man. I just that's got, an episode. Got, real, got real quiet. We did it. We did it. We you know what? This you... is our last episode before Christmas. It is. Yeah. So if you celebrate, uh, Merry Christmas. If you don't celebrate, I hope you uh, are doing something fun for yourself while everybody happy else. Happy Hanukkah. Yeah. Or happy whatever, you know? Just yeah. uh, go see a good movie and take advantage of some sales. Relax, man. Just relax, relax man. and be around the ones you love. Yeah. And if that is annoying, then I hope that you get to be with your friends or by yourself. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Do something Just, good for yourself. And, uh, and hey, get out there and... Do something dumb for love. Dum da dum dum dum.